Viewpoints is VHB's thought leadership platform, where we share insights on critical issues and emerging technologies in the AEC industry. I'm Mike Carragher, President and CEO of VHB. I'm excited to introduce VHB's thought leaders and our client and partner podcast participants, all future-focused thinkers who want to reimagine the built environment. I hope you'll tune in often and leave inspired. Thanks, Mike. This is Dave Mahon, VHB's Chief Technology Officer, and I'm your host for Viewpoints Podcast, Episode 1, The Future of Advanced Air Mobility with Lilium, EVITOL Jets Take to the Skies. Today, I'm joined by Lilium Senior Manager of Public Policy, Matt Brofman, for a conversation about the very first EVITOL, Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing Jet, which Lilium is currently developing. Matt, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Dave. Matt, I've heard you refer to yourself as a strategic activator. What a great title. For our Viewpoint listeners who don't know Lilium, tell us a little bit about the company and your role. Yeah, so at Lilium, we're you know an electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft manufacturer. Uh, and so we've got you know uh, probably now close to around 800 employees uh, that are in Munich, Germany, uh, working on you know building this uh, next generation of aircraft that, as you mentioned, is going to be able to uh, uh, you know really bring people across the state of Florida. Uh, and then we've got a handful of us that are here in the U.S. working to really lay the groundwork that's going to enable a service uh, for those vehicles, right? Like the, the challenge with doing anything that is uh, completely transformative is sometimes the marketplace isn't always ready. And so Lilium is taking an approach uh, that we want to make sure the market is ready and getting the market ready, right? From the vertiports to uh, making sure that someone's operating the vehicles, et cetera. Uh, and then obviously working with the community. And so my role uh, at Lilium is focused on just that, right? The community integration side of things. So working with cities and uh, municipalities and counties across Florida uh, to make sure that we find the right locations to land in and that we, the infrastructure is ready for the vehicles. How is NASA involved with this? You talk about the stakeholders. There's a lot of people that are looking at this. Yeah, you know, every look, every city uh, for the most part is is going to be involved in this at some point in the future, right? And I think, you know, I was obviously before this with the city of Orlando, and you know, Mayor Dyer took a uh, a lean in approach, right? Which was, look, if this is going to happen, uh, the city of Orlando, I think, made a Mayor Dyer made a made a smart choice to say we we want to have uh, a seat at the table, and so Lilium partnered with Orlando and Tavistock Development, which is a developer for Lake Nona, uh, to announce that first vertiport in Lake. Nona. Uh, Orlando has since gone on and is working, obviously, with VHB on a AAM plan that Lilium is is excited to be a stakeholder in, uh, and NASA is supporting as well. And so there's a lot of stakeholders. And, and one of the challenges, right, in from a city perspective is this work, there, there isn't a director of AAM in any city, right? There's not a director of advanced air mobility in any city or county, and even that I'm aware of any state, right? And so when you start to think about that, uh, well, where does it fit, right? And so there ends up being a lot of people that need to come to the table uh, to have these conversations and, and to think through this. And that's a lot of the work that we're doing is making sure that we're talking with the right folks at the cities and counties. When is uh, Lilium anticipating to be open and operational for the public? Yeah, so we're on track to have our certification uh, of our vehicle in 2024 uh, and to have fly our first commercial passengers in late 24, early 25. Uh, and our entry into service market is the U.S. and in the U.S. it is Florida, right? So we anticipate, you know, flying passengers uh, uh, in Florida in the next, you know, four or five years here, and that network will continue to grow throughout Florida. 
Uh, we're obviously working on a network in, in our, our home country in Germany as well, uh, and having conversations with partners all across the globe. Um, but Florida is going to be this first market for Lilium where we're taking our jet and, and working with a partner to bring it into service. And, you know, in terms of inevitability, right, you, you can look at what, uh, uh, you know, folks, folks write about, um, but, you know, the reality is, you know, depending on, you know, regardless of, of a specific date, right, this is going to change the way people move regionally and, and even long-term within cities. And I think that, you know, when you look at evolutions of transportation, uh, I, I, I found this great, uh, um, you know, a cartoon, political cartoon from when cars were first being introduced. And it was like this fight over whether there should be speed limits or not. Um, and, and obviously like that's, that's an interesting fight to, to think about having now. Uh, and we have probably in the other direction now in cities, right? Uh, but, you know, I think that's where we're going to be is we're going to be not about uh, do we want these, where are they going to go, but it's going to be the nuances of, you know, where the, you know, how large should Verna ports be? How often should they be taking off and landing? How, you know, should they be subsidized long-term, right? By government, right? Whether that's in the United States or somewhere else abroad, right? These are going to be, have the opportunity to move large amounts of people. And I think government and, and cities and counties are going to get involved in a very different way than, than they are today. But I think just as with cars, just as with trains, just as with boats, right? That evolution takes time. And so, you know, we're excited that Lilium is going to be one, you know, the first one uh, in the United States uh, operating and to really begin that shift and take cities and counties along with us, right? This is a learning experience for everyone. And we want to have partners at the table. Um, so that cities can kind of figure out the right way to play in this space and to do it in a way that that benefits the residents. It's exciting to see what Lilium's doing in this in a short time frame when you think about 2025, right? You know, so let's move towards talking about the vehicle itself, because really this is where the magic happens. And this is the strength of what Lilium brings to this. How many vehicles does Lilium expect to have in the sky when we're actually approaching that 2025? Yeah, so there'll be obviously a ramp up, right? Because uh, both with infrastructure and with vehicles, but over time, we anticipate having about 125 jets flying in Florida when we get our network fully up and running. And that network is the 14 vertiports that we've announced. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting because we, we think of it as, as, as jets, because obviously the people are going to be getting on these vehicles. And so when we talk about capacity, we're always thinking about jets, but, you know, it's really infrastructure, right? That when we have infrastructure, there's going to be, and we're going to talk about this in a bit, but, you know, the gates and then the movement at the infrastructure. And so while jets obviously are, are the important piece and, and, and the compelling piece of, of how we move people, uh, the infrastructure, uh, you know, at the end of the day is going to be the limiting factor for any network of how you can move, right? If you think about today, uh, you know, yes, you know, you need to make sure you get airplanes, you need to make sure you get trains, but, you know, getting trains is pretty easy, right? Building the tracks, uh, if the tracks aren't there and the stations aren't built, it doesn't really matter if you've got the trains. And so uh, it's both the jets, uh, the number of jets, but also the number of vertiports. And we anticipate having 14 vertiports in Florida. So, so there's about, there, there's a little over 300 manufacturers of eVitals out there, if not more than that these days. Um, how do you describe the difference uh, that Lilling brings uh, and the difference between that and the helicopter? Yeah, so to you know, let's take the the unique kind of piece for Lilium first. Uh, you know, we it's our what we call our ducted electric vector vector thrust jets, um, and these you know uh, jets are essentially pushing air. So there's 36 of them on our vehicle. That's what's pushing air down, so that we can take off vertically, and then it pushes it horizontally in a transition, so we fly like a traditional airplane. Uh, that is very unique to the design of the Lilium aircraft, and that you know is unique and does a couple of things. Uh, one, it's ultra redundancy, right? With 36. Uh, 
um, you know, uh, you have the ability to be able to operate it, you know, in failure Two, they're actually self-contained. And so uh, they, you know, they, they don't have these open, open blades that it could potentially be a safety hazard, both if someone, you know, gets too close to it, but also if one were to break. Um, and then, you know, probably most Im important is the noise factor, right? So these are actually acoustic lined to bring down the noise profile of the aircraft. Uh, and then, you know, not to mention, right, we, we, you know, which we'll probably talk about, but, you know, because they're all electric, right, the ability for that to also help increase our range. So when we're, uh, we're operating like a fixed wing, uh, we are operating like an aircraft, which is a very efficient way for us to operate. So those are kind of, you know, what we think of, you know, as the, one of the compelling differentiators. What that has meant also is because of that, uh, we have actually, I believe, have one of the highest passenger counts uh, for any vehicle, right? So we have six passengers in our vehicle. Uh, and if you're looking at how much are these going to cost in the future, right, the biggest determination of cost is your load factor, right? Uh, we know from any transportation system, if you're a bus carrying one person, right, it's going to cost a lot more per passenger than if you're a bus carrying 30 people, right? And the same goes in the air. So the more people we can actually put on a, on a vehicle, the less cost the operators will have to operate per passenger, uh, which means it can really, you know, bring the cost and, and make this more accessible for more people. You know, in terms of what we're, how we're different than, than a helicopter, I think it's probably easier to tell you how we're the, similar to a helicopter, and that's that we both take off vertically uh, and we go in the sky. Um, we don't like to think of ourselves as an air taxi because it really uh, lends people to think that they're going to be hailing these, right? That this is an idea like an Uber or Lyft where you might just, you know, quickly get in one uh, uh, on demand. But in order to reach, you know, efficiencies early on, you know, we'll have scheduled service, right? We want to make sure that we have that high load factor that we are, you know, making purposeful network building uh, when we build our route, when our operator builds our routes, right? That's where it's going to be more efficient. Um, so it's really not, you know, an air taxi, you know, we hear people talk about flying cars, obviously not a flying car, because that would, have, you know, as my seven-year-old son would say, if it's a flying car, it would drive on the road. Um, you know, we're not going to be driving these on the road. They'll also be commercially piloted, right? So it's a good reminder that people aren't going to be individually flying these things around the sky. These will be commercial pilots, just like any other aircraft uh, that would be taking passengers. So, so there's a lot there to unpack, right? Um, yeah. You brought up noise. Um, so I'd like to go to the noise side of this. One of the biggest perceptions from a new technology is that uh, there would be significant amount of noise that would come out of these. You know, so how does the noise of a Lilium Evital compare to, say, a vehicle, uh, a passenger car? How loud will it be? You know, is a person sitting in their, in their house going to hear it in their living room? No to the living room, right? Because the nice thing is we have one of the lowest profile noise, noise profiles for even this type of, a, of, of an aircraft, but certainly way lower than a helicopter or traditional aircraft. So what we're talking about is, you know, about 60 uh, decibels, you know, from about a half a mile, 500 meters away. And, you know, that noise profile means, you know, really anybody that would be nearby is barely going to hear it. And then when it's, uh, you know, at altitude and cruising, it'll be, you know, basically inaudible. I've had the, the the privilege of being able to see our aircraft in Germany, uh, and I can you know validate that it is an incredibly quiet vehicle. And this is a technology demonstrative doesn't even have all the the acoustic te technology in it. And you know so that's part of what enables this aircraft to do things that we've never been able to do in aviation, right? In terms of where we land, looking at urban environments near downtown. And I think that, you know, it's, it's incredibly difficult. We talk about inevitability is hard to get people to wrap their head around because, you know, no one's 
seen these, uh, like most people haven't seen these, these aircraft. But the other thing to wrap your head around is noise, right? And the work that, that I've done in the past, and I know you, you've done, Dave, and that VHB does, it, it's always difficult to get the public to understand, you know, what noise uh, is when they haven't heard it, right? We can talk about decibels, we can talk about wavelengths, we can talk about all these different things with noise profile. But I think until people see it, they hear it, and they touch it, that's when it'll be real and people will realize how little of an impact this has from a noise perspective. It'll be interesting to actually have some test cases brought over to the U.S. so that folks can actually see the vehicle and hear the vehicle. You're right. It's a, it's a touch point that people actually need to see uh, in order to get their heads wrapped around it. 60 decibels is not a, a significant amount of noise coming out of a vehicle, right? When you think about the ambient noise of a traffic on the, on the roadway. Um, speaking of the vehicle, uh, you referred to the vehicle actually having the, the passenger count. I believe you said six passengers currently. Yep. Um you know, with the loads and, and with the uh, demands on the electric side, you know, how big do you expect the vehicles to get? You know, we have, you know, a lot of tourism in central Florida and, you know, to go from a six passenger to something a little bit larger to accommodate maybe the tourism side. Are you guys looking at that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the more the more passengers we can put on a plane, right? As we were just talking about, right? The better that that makes our economics per, for the passengers uh, and the economics for the company uh, operating and, and for us as well. And so we are, and we've announced and we've shared publicly that we are working on a 16 passenger version of our aircraft, right? And the again, another uh, uh, unique component of our design and architecture of our aircraft is that we can scale without having the aircraft have to actually get substantially larger, right? Obviously, it'll be larger if you're going from six to 16, but the amount of of space that we will need to occupy on, say, a landing on, on a landing facility or a vertiport uh, does not exponentially increase, uh, and the technology uh, really allows us to, to to increase that over time. And so, you know, to me, this idea that we could eventually have the 16 passenger version flying around in Florida and really across the country and across the globe uh, really begins to get exciting about what we would be able to do. But even at six passengers, right? We we think of six passengers as as being relatively small. We think about public transport. But when you think about the throughput, again, from a single vertiport that you could provide, that can get pretty high. Uh, and, and let's also not forget that, unfortunately, today, most people are driving around, and you probably know the exact stat, but with about one point something people in their car, right? So six uh, is already exponentially, uh, almost exponentially bigger than what we're doing on, on the roads. Um, how do you see the battery technology evolving over the next decade? You know, one of the questions I had uh, asked of me was, are there going to be a spare battery in this thing? You know, is, is the vehicle is going to have backup systems for it? Yeah, so uh, uh, let, let's talk, you know, first of all, we've announced uh, a, a battery partner, SmartCell, uh, who is the, they, they are both working in the aviation room space, but also I believe they're the supplier for Porsche. Uh, and so, you know, a, a battery technology company that has uh, some great experience. We've got a bunch of engineers working on the exact composition and, and, and working uh, uh, to continually improve the battery technology for the Lilium aircraft. In terms of, you know, uh, having a battery in this, you know, uh, enabling flight, right? Like a, we, from a safety perspective, safety is the number one thing that Lilium is focused on. Uh, and so our uh, aircraft is ultra redundant, right? So there's, it's not one battery. Uh, there are many batteries uh, powering that aircraft. And so that we could have uh, an individual battery, uh, not only, you know, die per se, but actually have a runaway, right? They're self-contained from a, from a fire perspective, right? So that if there was an issue, it would be self-contained to that battery. The pilot would be alerted to it. 
they'd be able to make a, a safe landing at the appropriate location uh, and deal with that on the ground, right? So we want to make sure that we have ultra redundancy in this aircraft so that there isn't that single point of failure where if one thing uh, goes wrong, uh, the aircraft is in trouble. Um, and so the battery technology is where, you know, it's one of those places where that really is first and foremost. We know that uh, battery in the skies, you know, is relatively new. Um, and so we want to make sure that people both, there is actual safety, right? Like we want to make sure that this is uh, uh, a safe vehicle, but we also want to make sure we are able to communicate to passengers, to regulators, uh, and to the public about how this is a safe vehicle. And so we'll be putting out a lot more information uh, as we get closer to uh, our entry into service, specifically about that design technology uh, uh, and how we have the ultra redundancy built in, not just from batteries, but with the engines, uh, with all of our avionics as well. Uh, and we're using, uh, you know, I think since we're talking about safety, we're using existing partners who have, you know, these certification and aviation experience to know what it takes uh, to build this technology so that it is safe for the skies, right? We all know that if you're, you had a battery issue in your electric car, right, you pull over the side of the road. Uh, we understand that that's not how it works in the sky. And we want to make sure that we've got redundant technology so that there are no safety issues uh, that come up on our aircraft. So one of, one of the, um, challenges with batteries is the um, you know, charge time, right? That's often discussed, you know, so what is the charging time for a low-end vehicle uh, to turn? So for example, you land in Orlando, you want to turn it around and, and you know, do a flight over to Tampa. How long is it going to take, take us to get that charge? Yeah. It, it, so we are currently uh, at a point where we, we are, have shared that we can recharge 80% uh, in 15 minutes and 100% in 30 minutes. And, you know, I know, and I've talked to our engineers, you know, they're always working to reduce that time. Um, but also understanding that, you know, turning an aircraft in 30 minutes uh, is also a, a pretty high feat, even if you didn't have charging, right? And so there's a bunch of operational things that have to be in play as well to make sure we can turn the aircraft quickly. Um, and just think about any large aircraft you get on, uh, how, you know, how long it waits. Even think about how long your Uber or Lyft waits for you sometimes when they show up. Uh, but yes, from a charging perspective, it's 15 minutes uh, uh, to get to 80% uh, and 30 minutes to get to 100%. So we think that that allows us to operate at that high frequency uh, that we would need to to make this really economically uh, a success. So Matt, is there is there like an ideal optimum speed that you're traveling at for that to, to get the maximum amount of life out of a battery? And then the second question is, how far can these vehicles go? Yeah, so we the vehicles themselves can travel up to 175 miles an hour, uh, and we have about a hundred, up to 150, 155 mile range, and that's with the reserves that the FAA would require and that we would require from a safety perspective to make sure uh, that if there was an issue we need to go around uh, or we couldn't land at the attendant vertiport, we're able to go to an alternative vertiport. Right? We, again, we want to make sure we're uh, we're adhering to the great safety standards that already exist for aircraft. Um, you know, the FAA and, and EASA, which is where we're also being certified, you know, have really strict standards for aircraft safety to make sure that we can get uh, uh, to where we need to get to. But 150 up to 150 uh, is the current range based off of the current battery technology and the aircraft that we are looking to bring to Florida. So, so you brought up FAA, right? And it's one of those that there's a lot of regulations and restrictions um, with um, FAA getting involved on anything in the sky. And there's a lot of lot going on in the sky these days. So how is FAA going to manage uh, the EVATOLs and, 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 you know, the flight patterns for these vehicles? Yeah, I, I think to kind of start to put that framework out, uh, uh, um, you know, when we think about the FAA and, and, and even in Europe, the OSA, right? What the regulatory role is that they're all playing, right? We, we know first and foremost is safety. 
And so they're looking at, you know, really I'll, I'll think of it as three buckets, right? The first is the aircraft itself, right? And so they're type certifying the aircraft, uh, uh, which is really looking to make sure that the aircraft itself with that, they actually also certify uh, the organization as a safe organization. But, you know, think about the aircraft as kind of that one piece. Uh, they're also going to, uh, you know, look at and review from an FAA perspective, all of the vertiports, right? To make sure they're safe to operate out of. And then the entity that is operating the vehicle also had be certified uh, by the FAA, right? So there's kind of three areas that doesn't talk about even the pilots that obviously have to go through a training program, uh, but you know, kind of those three areas. Then when you get into the sky, the, 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 the good news is we are able to operate just like any GA kind of uh, general aviation aircraft. And so that's where we'll be flying, how we'll be flying, right? So on, on launch, we'll be using visual flight rules um, and following all the FAA procedures that exist to date. Um, and, you know, we believe just as, uh, you know, any, any of our competitors I know do and, and everyone out there in the industry believes, you know, the FAA will progress, right? And we're looking at this kind of crawl, walk, run approach, right? So, you know, we talked about, you know, the hundred plus aircraft that we want to have fully in the Florida network, you know, while a hundred sounds like, uh, you know, a, a lot when you give the amount of aircraft that are up in the sky, probably right now in Florida, um, it's not a, a substantial increase. And, you know, we believe that, that we can operate within the existing rules, uh, you know, making sure that the towers that were going, uh, uh, that were entering into any of their airspace or even going near their airspace, they all have a great awareness of how we're operating. And the nice thing about, you know, the folks that will be operating the William Aircraft is they're going to be predictable, right? Uh, today, a, a GA pilot goes up and maybe they're doing a flight school or they're going on a leisure trip, right? They, you know, their course is going to be different, right? It's a net new, something that's out there that is, wasn't the same as it was yesterday. If we're flying Orlando to Tampa, we're flying Orlando to Tampa, you know, pretty much the same route every day. Uh, the, you know, everyone in the sky and those on the ground are going to be very aware of, of, of how we're operating. And so that makes us way more predictable than, you know, a typical GA airport would be, but that's essentially how we'll be operating on day one. The, uh, the general av aviation you referenced and you've re referred to a couple of times, uh, the use of a pilot, you know, and I'm going to go towards the, uh, the next gen on this. Um, do you see a time when these are fully autonomous? And if so, maybe about approximately when do you see that happening? Yeah, I don't know that I could even begin to guess. Uh, you know, Dave, I, I think you know I'm I'm a futurist, right? If I uh, if I I had picked when we'd have uh, autonomous vehicles, uh, that that time has already probably passed. Um, but you know, I, I think for you know autonomy in the skies, you know, has its challenges. I think what we'll see first, and what what our company has shared, you know, we we would be looking towards well before any autonomy in the skies is remote piloting, right? Um, and when you think about what that does, right, it does two things. One, it opens up another seat, right? So we talk about the economics of, of how this work, it opens up another seat. Um, and two, it also allows for, uh, you know, better control over all the aircraft that are out there. And, you know, having a pilot in our aircraft, which is what we're going to have on day one. And, and, you know, as we, you know, build out our network into Florida, you know, that gives a lot of comfort, not just to the FAA, but to our passengers, right? To the community and to the public that we are going to have a commercially, a commercial pilot in these aircraft flying. Um, and, and they're just, you know, uh, other than being electric and that they take off vertically, they're going to operate just like every other aircraft that's in the sky. That level of comfort is needed to get people both into the jets, get the FAA to approve the jets. Uh, but but long term, yeah, you know, I think remotely piloted, and then sometime far off in the future, I'm sure there'll be autonomy in the skies. Um, but you know, I think that there's a, a lot to do before we get there. Matt, I sincerely appreciate your insight on Williams Uvital. It's definitely a game changing activity, and I can't wait to see it in practice. And thank you to the listeners tuning in to VHB Viewpoints today. My conversation with Matt is not over. We'll be digging into the complexities of vertiports and the passenger experience for advanced air mobility travel 
in a future Viewpoints episode with Matt.